The boss likes hot dogs. You know, it's national. He, he hot dog won't day. stop talking about it around the office. <laughs> Ever since he threw that hot dog party. <laughs>
is safe. When we have the land contiguous with Ukraine safe, we keep our American soldiers at home and our primary objective should only be to engage with America's vital national interests are being engaged in. Unfortunately, President Biden has no ability to understand and appreciate what that face. looks like. Wait, wait, wait may, may I ask so you're saying that it's in our national interest, vital national interest to degrade the Russian military, in other words, to fight Russia with other people's soldiers. I would, I would say it this way. If you think about exactly what he just the said, world though. order that we established after World War II, if you think about a rules-based system, where does the rules-based system come from? It comes from this nation, our Judeo-Christian foundation, that says that there are rules of the road, that there is something called absolute truth. And we established that. As a part of that absolute truth, what we're trying to do is make sure that our home front remains safe. Keeping our home front safe means evaluating the actual threats to our country, the most immediate military threat that could happen is Russia. Why is a good question. You look at their sixth generation jets, you look at their hypersonic weapons, you look at their nuclear arsenal. Everything that we do that degrades the Russian military is good for America. You look at the long term threat to our nation, it's China. Their existential threat that we face long term becomes China. You look at this rising axis of evil that we're seeing being formed, it's Russia. China and Iran. Breaking that to pieces before it gets started, I think, is in our vital interest. Mm. So on the day last February that Russia invaded eastern Ukraine, Russia and China were not allied. But within weeks of the sanctions that we applied and the stated intent of the Biden administration to effectively wage war with Russia, you saw an alignment which now hardened between Russia and China. The United States military cannot, as you know, since you oversee it as a member of the Senate, cannot actually defeat Russia and China united. Um, and so it would seem that the Biden policies have created a larger threat, no? Well, I would say it by looking back to 2014. There are two times that we've seen incursions in Ukraine that create peril for America. The first time was under President Obama when he drew that red line in Syria and nothing happened, which gave permission to Putin to come in and take Crimea. The second time we saw was when President Biden sat back and watched as Schultz and Germany led the Western alliance to provide resources to Ukraine, which was a mistake colossal on our part. So what you saw was President Biden saying to Putin, I'm going to give you a list of areas that we don't want you to have cyber attacks. Weakness. Second that we saw. So I think Tim Scott was probably not expecting a lot of pushback from Tucker on his perspective there. David, what do you think of uh, Tim Scott's hawkish response and Tucker's response to that? I suspect Tucker Carlson has some kind of hypnotism he's doing right now. Because like, if you notice the way they connect eyes every time Tim Scott's like... Like has to look away. He's got to stand. He's got to do something else because he's like, I can't talk with he this sees, dude looking at me. He just sees that Tucker stank face. And he's like, I, he's going to turn to stone if he looks him in the eye. I feel well, I, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, what was most interesting to me was like, 
Tim Scott kind of gave an answer that I think a lot of people would generally agree with in the very beginning, but then he like shifted what he was saying. And that's where Tucker was like clapping for him in the beginning. And then all of a sudden Tim Scott starts talking about like weakening Russia and all these things. And that's when the Tucker stank face just gets like, wait, where's this going? <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I think he like almost didn't expect it at first. Yeah. Kind of took a turn. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The interesting thing there is a couple of things. We already have boots on the ground in Ukraine. We already know this. This was part of the leaks on the Minecraft server links. Remember that? Uh, where we have intelligence agents and other special forces type agents on the ground in Ukraine. That was already confirmed. So that's just, if, if he was concerned about that, then he's on the wrong side of the war already, right? If he actually opposed the war of America getting involved. Second, he's repeatedly voted for funding in Ukraine. And, you know, he's trying to justify that, obviously. I like Tim Scott on a lot of issues. He's a great articulator on a lot of issues. He's been a great defender of the Second Amendment and other great stuff. Uh, but on this, he's listening to the wrong people. And it, it, I, can, I, I suspect that because he actually blends in two different basic schools of international political theory. One is realism. So when you hear him say his vital national interest, what he's saying is that countries, uh, the realism school says countries have this innate, because we're in a anarchistic international scene where there's no government above the governments, that these governments have uh, an innate propensity maybe duty to pursue their self-interest and that's the that's what you're trying to navigate in international diplomacy is is recognizing and dealing with that fact the other one and he kind of starts out with that and saying he has to articulate the vital national interest and that's important for democracy's sake right he's he's making a good point there but then he says it is in the uh, interest because of the other school of philosophy idealism which is that the rule-based order, when he talks about that, he's talking about idealism, that we're supposed to establish these structures to try to limit states to prevent war from happening. But then he kind of bastardizes idealism, and then he says, we have this Judeo-Christian-based rule system, but then it, uh, is he going to apply that to us? Right. right? Is, is it just one side, or is it all the sides? <laughs> right. Right? Was it the rule-based system when we got involved in Syria or when we were funding the genocide in Yemen? Was it the rule-based system when we invaded in Kosovo? Was it the rule-based system when we invaded Iraq? Like, what rule-based system? Actually, the whole system is realism. It's all might makes right, right? It's all the power of the most powerful make the policy on that level. The problem with that is that your realism unconstrained has a propensity to use interest in the broadest means possible because you're responding to the incentives of being in an anarchistic system where might makes right and the military industrial complex and the profit making motive of those systems. So you need a limiting principle to your realism to get to a place that's that's sensible and realism, at least from the perspective that's actually integrated with your other political values, whether you're a libertarian or conservative. The populist libertarian uh, populist conservative new conception has been that wars are bad and they have a cost and the people who pay the cost are mostly the people who are the constituents of the rural populists, right? People in middle America who's, you know, who are lower income, who sign up for the military, go to Iraq, see things they can't unsee, and then come back and are damaged for the rest of their lives, mm -hmm. right? So um, he can't answer why Russia having weapons is a threat to us because he has no case for why Russia is a threat, right? Right. All he says is that it's good cause, right? So he doesn't even fulfill his own promise, which is to articulate the 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 uh, vital national interest, because most people think of vital vital and vital national interest is something that's probably much more restrained than the vision that he's been given and trying to articulate from the incentives of the more broad, realistic 
view. Yeah, I mean, to me, the conflict in Ukraine and Russia, for us to be involved in that, that's more of an adventurous national interest, potentially. Not vital, as in, I, I see fi- vital as we have an invasion of the borders of the United States. Like, that, to me, is pretty vital. Or there's, you know, perhaps like we have uh, going on in Russia, we have nukes put right off, you know, the coast of the United States or something like that. Like, that's vital. That's, that's you know, so close to home that it, it has to be dealt with immediately and it's extremely important to the the continuation of the united states right Mm -hmm. not necessarily what's going on around the world but and realism properly understood also understands that russia has a realistic anarchistic state that they're in that they have to pursue their national interest right so that means you have to think differently about nato the minute you're saying i'm a realist because if you set up a giant incentive for you for russia to push back against in its sphere of influence, then you're the one taking response. You should be the one taking responsibility for the conflict. Right. Right. If you're not, if you're increasing tensions, knowing the fact that, that this is how states behave, but you take no responsibility for it, you're not being a realist. Second of that, if you believe that government should be limited in all these other ways, if you think that government has perverse incentives uh, tends not to be connected to the thing that it's trying to, it, it doesn't have the knowledge to be able to make rational decisions because it's a top down, not bottom up system. If you think that on domestic policy, but don't integrate that with your foreign policy, you need a principle for your foreign policy. To do that. And the best one for that, and this is articulated best by uh, guys like the um, um, uh, def- uh, defense priorities and other kind of new wave of kind of bringing in realism that's more limited government orientated more integrated with a larger limited government point of view as realism and restraint right because you need a restrained vision of what the military capacities are what restrained vision of what vital means of what interest means and all these other things without that secondary principle you're having you're going to have a harder time winning the fundamental debate because so much of this is driven by fear Right. So what Tim Scott was hoping for is to say, well, they have super awesome weapons and everyone was like, oh, well, I'm really afraid now. And so that justifies the spending. Right. When you when you said that uh, he's listening to the wrong people on this, you're referring to like neocons generally. Yeah, I don't know who he's listening to, but I I I assume it's the D.C. blob. Sure. Which which would sort of tend to have this neoconservative hawkish worldview very much driven by the military industrial complex and things of that nature, right? I would assume so on the right. Like on the left, all the support of this is coming from idealists, right? They're saying we have a rules-based international order that we should comply with. The problem with the war in Iraq was that the UN wouldn't approve of it and he violated the rules. That's at least a sensible position, right? I don't see how they apply the same thing when it comes to Syria, Libya. (laughs) (laughs) When Obama does it, it's a bad thing, right? Right. Um, Or if it's done with uh, ground troops that's a problem. But when it's done with um, special forces, it's not a problem. Or if it's done with a drone, it's not a problem, according to these kind of democratic liberal idealists. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I mean that in the technical sense, idealist here. I'm not saying, I'm not criticizing their idealism. I'm just saying in the philosophy of international relations of idealism, they're not holding true or consistent to it. And that's, and that's, and that, and when you see a pattern of people advocating for rules to apply to everybody else, but us, what you're dealing with isn't a philosophy anymore, isn't a theory anymore. What you're dealing with is a post hoc justification for your political preferred outcome. And that's what's missing in international relations at almost all times is some 
lens that holds us accountable for our own actions. And that's what, and, be, and that's such a high liability thing to do in politics, because as soon as you do that, you're a Putin apologist or a Saddam apologist or mm-hmm. a bin Laden apologist or whatever. But that's what's required in order to have an actual sensible worldview in this stuff. Right. Yeah, it's, it's all too necessary with that worldview to have to view the United States as the inevitable good guy. We're only out doing good in the world. We can do no wrong, right? You have to do that in order to justify some of the things that we're out there doing right now. Right. And you have to gloss over all the history. And and, and that's that's a, the hand-waving about Jesus is another great example there, right? Is that we have a Judeo-Christian foundation of rules. And we, after World War II, we set up this great world order. And it's like, well, how many millions of Iraqis would Jesus endorse us killing? Exactly. What's the number, right? Yeah. Between a almost 30 year long wars. And I know you're saying, oh, David, the Iraq war was 20 years. No, no, no. The Iraq war started in the early nineties and it never stopped from the Iraqi point of view. Right. But to the American public point of view, it was like, oh, we had a thing and then nothing happened for a long time. In the middle of that, a half a million children died of dysentery and preventable disease because of our blockade. Yeah. Keep that in mind. So to them, that doesn't, that, it's, it's impossible to look at it from, Jesus's point of view, <laughs> in my view, and see, oh yeah, this is definitely the system that he would embrace. Right. Right. Might makes right. I thought the meek inherited the earth. Right. Right. What are we talking about here? It, it, the, the, the application of that was ah, so politically convenient without any real reflection. How, how do you justify the war in Vietnam? Napalming children. And say that, oh, that's the rules-based order based on Judeo-Christianity. That is just, that's an abuse of the term Judeo-Christian ethics. If you are a small business owner looking for exponential growth, you have to connect with Adam Thune at Intellectual Patriots. He will revolutionize your business game and help you get to the next level. Adam can streamline your business practices and advertising strategies to improve your bottom line. His expertise in data engineering means he can build you the systems you need to collect and analyze market data. His mission is to provide you with invaluable insights to fuel your success. From grant writing and business proposals to digital systems integrations, even AI management, Intellectual Patriots is a one-stop shop for cutting-edge solutions. Don't wait another second. Visit intelpatriots.com to learn more. That's I-N-T-E-L patriots.com. With everything you're saying right there, it goes into a very James Burnham, like Machiavellian argument as well, where one of the clear incentives here, I think, especially when it comes to Ukraine and NATO expansionism, is that every country that joins NATO is forced to spend 2% of their GDP on military contracts, which is direct money into a lot of these neocons pockets. So everybody, so, and all these senators and congressmen and stuff like that, you know, they're all kind of puppets for the financial interests of the people at large, which a lot of this is the, you know, the Eisenhower beware the military industrial complex because it's growing ever powerful after World War II. Um, like, I think that there's a very clear, you put forward the noble lies and, you know, we have to protect Ukraine. We have to do all this stuff. We're the good guys, all these things. But at the end of the day, the people that are purporting those noble lies forward are profiting off of whatever they can extract from the decisions that are being made. Right. There's a bootlegger and Baptist phenomena here, right? Mm-hmm. The bootlegger is the military industrial interest. And the Baptist is the liberal on Twitter saying, no, Anyone who criticizes the U.S. role here is a Putin apologist. Can right? you clarify what you mean by that? Oh, in during prohibition, the, you had the the prohibitionists, right, who are like mostly made up of women who are saying alcohol is a scourge on society and we need to get rid of it. And then you had the bootlegger who was like, "Great, I really love it when you say that." And they're going to adopt those point of view 
and advocate for those things because the bootlegger isn't, you know, gets away with a lot more under prohibition, right? Because now they have a monopoly in the black market. Gotcha. Right. So it's it's the same. It's the same. Uh, you have people who are self-interested and people who are righteously interested. And the righteous are often abused by the self-interested. The self-interested. Mm-hmm. That makes total sense. Um, speaking of abuse, Mike Pence took a bit of a beating from Tucker here as well. Do we want to watch that clip? Um, yeah. Uh, the clip I have here, the clip I have queued up here is not actually, I think, the one that you're thinking of. That one wasn't in the list here. The one where he said um, that what goes on inside the borders of the United States, infrastructure, the well-being of the American economy and the American people was not his concern. Yeah. The one that I had, like, I was actually just scrolling through it while you guys were talking. The one I have here is actually the uh, religious liberty one. Um, Tucker, he criticized Mike Pence because he seems he's supposed to be this devout religious liberty guy. Mm -hmm. Right. And he went over to, and there was all these reports that were going on in Ukraine about how the Ukrainians were shutting down pastors and arresting pastors, uh, that were speaking out against the Ukraine government. And Mike Pence went over there and was like, and talked to them and they said that everything was fine. (laughs) So, (laughs) oh, so we just took him at their word. Like we're all good here, guys. No, no worries. I spoke to the arsonist and it was quite obviously an electrical fire. It was an accident. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So here's a, here's a little bit of his response. We won't listen to the entire clip, but here's a little bit of his response here. ...of America to continue to give the Ukrainian military the resources that they need to repel the Russian invasion and restore their sovereignty. Would you, may, may I ask, well, would, would you there. be, and I, I believe you have a good faith position on this, and we have disagreements on it, but I want to just, I, I can't let you elide over the question of the treatment of Christians. And I, I know, I, I heard and that. Would again. you be, well, no, but hold on. Would I'm you, not, you, would you problem be is willing? you don't accept my answer. I just told you that I asked the religious leader in Kiev if it was happening. You asked me if I raised the issue, and I did. And I'm saying, I also raised it with the correct. Ukrainians, and I was told that there are, there are religious leaders who have been working with the Russian military that is murdering people by the thousands. Okay. I mean, Tucker, look. uh, Wait, wait, hold on. Don't you think... Let me explain to you what I think our national interest is there. I would think you would have greater concern for religious liberty in Ukraine. And I'm surprised I, I by told your you answer. I raised the issue of religious liberty. No, you spoke to one person who's clearly I didn't on say one I side of it. And I, there are many, many news reports that are not disputed by anybody that right. many clergy have been arrested in Ukraine. And I'm merely saying I may not agree with their views. I'm not Russian Orthodox. But you can't arrest clergy for having different views, period. Because if you do, you violate the basic tenet of Look, I, I won't look. I want to be clear with you. I won't stand by it. I won't stand for it. And people are being persecuted for their religious beliefs. I won't stand for it. And any country with which the country of our nation is supporting or our allies are supporting. Yes. Period. Yeah, he really did call him on the carpet there. I mean, (laughs) talking to one guy uh, and calling it, okay, well, things are good is, is not really exactly doing your due diligence if this is something that you really purport to care about a lot. Yeah, I don't know enough about the individual story of religious persecution. One of the things I think is missing there is there are, the Orthodox Church is different than a lot of other Christian churches in terms of its structure. A lot of it has like a Ukrainian church, a Russian church, a Polish church, and like it's it's a different structure. So I mm-hmm. and I don't not, I don't know enough about it to be able to comment on um, on it. Other than that. It's an open, I think it's an interesting question that someone needs to ask, which is, is association with the Russian Orthodox Church in enough, enough of a association 
to justify persecution if the Russians are invading your country. And, right. And I and I don't know. Like if they, if you're giving active military intelligence to the enemy, it seems like well, you, you're now a combatant, right? Well, and that's a different um, story. That's yeah. no longer that's what that's what clergy suggests. Right? Sure, sure. So I mean, there's certainly like facts to be found there. Right. right? But but that's like a fact and maybe a case. But is that all these cases? Right. right. How many cases are there? I don't know enough about that to comment that. But I do right. I do think a, a dose of skepticism. It feels like a manipulation to say, well, you know, it's a problem, but. You know, I, but I talked to a guy and he said it was okay. I, I, I just will never forget. Um, one time I, I, I passed a bill and uh, it was the campus free speech bill and the governor vetoed it. And his signing letter said, I talked to the universities about the free speech problem on universities and they said there wasn't a problem. So he vetoed the bill. And I just remember thinking, it's just like, you just, you're asking the fox how secure the hen house is, man. Like, yeah. come on. You you didn't pick that up in your own letter, much less exactly here, right? If you're asking Ukrainian officials about how, whether or not they are persecuting minorities, especially when we know that they've shut down media organizations that are hostile in, in there. We know that they're suspending democracy for right. another election year, right? I because mean, Zelensky said, when asked, will there be elections? He said, well, if the conflict is over, there will be. Yeah. But basically implying if the conflict isn't over, there probably won't be, right? Mm-hmm. Which is kind of crazy. We're over there fighting for democracy. We're backing Ukraine to defend their democracy. And yet it has actually also been suspended. Well, <laughs> democracy is another one of those magic words. Like it's it's the, it's the a spell that you use to cast on people so that they just start to do your bidding. It's like we're defending good. Good. Democracy equals good. Yeah. Everything actually, bad equals fascism. We, we, we fight bad. We fight for good, right? Right. It's just, it's all just like, it's wizardry. It's important to note, too, that that is constitutional there, right? They have a provision in their constitution to suspend during a foreign conflict elections. Okay. So it's not like he's doing something extrajudicial, but it is concerning. that, And that's one of the preciousness, uh, part of the preciousness of the American constitution is how rigid it is because it's a first draft, right? (laughs) Because it was like the first attempt at uh, a government truly restrained by a constitution in this way with separation of powers and all these ways. Now you can go back and there are some proto versions of it but it's most complete first draft and the first amendment can't be suspended during during a, a war the wilson administration tried they failed fdr tried and failed habeas corpus has been suspended multiple times uh and uh, repeatedly it, it 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 keeps coming back as suspension right <laughs> uh bush has suspended it i don't i don't i'm actually exactly clear if we still have habeas corpus technically right in the united states so like question. It's one of those things that because it's not specifically articulated in the Constitution, there are all kinds of ways that the Constitution is limited. It can't can't it, it didn't stop the stupid fire in a crowded theater argument from actually being decided by the Supreme Court. Right. Right. And that was to everyone recall that was because of protests in World War One. Right. And they said saying, hey, I don't think uh, World War One's a great idea is the same as shouting fire in a crowded theater. And that's and, not and it was extremely unpopular at yeah. the time, too, which is very important is like everybody likes to think that in World War One and World War Two were like these popular endeavors that we went embarked, you know, that we're supposed to go embark on. But the populace did not want to do this. And mm-hmm. people that were uh, complaining about the draft, they were thrown in prison by mm-hmm. the Wilson administration because of this decision right mm-hmm. here. But it was ultimately like the First Amendment over the long run because it's such a firm part of the document you know it 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 has slowly eroded away from that standard Uh, and we just don't have that same kind of standard when it comes to other sorts of components of the rights and those are the limitations that we currently have when it comes to our big government our big state Uh, and ukraine doesn't have that and no neither does you know (laughs) new zealand or 
you know, uh, Canada, Canada. Oh, Canada. Great story from last week. It's not on the notes, but just this guy is great at viral video. He goes on and this guy shows up. He's like, whoa, it sounds like you've been criticizing Mr. Trudeau. And he's just like, oh, well, uh, it's, it's my right. I'm on Facebook and I'm saying what I'm going to say. And it's like, well, you're, you can't be doing that. You see. And he's just like, well, I'm going to just keep doing it. So it's like, well, you're going to come by. <laughs> We're going to have to come by again. He's just like, well, I hope you bring some coffee next time. You know, they're just, <laughs> and this is like Royal Canadian mounted police, like standing at his door. Yeah. Right? And he's like, well, uh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> he's just like, I hope Trudeau's like hung for treason or something like that. You know, like pretty, something pretty that's obviously protected in the United States constitution, but not protected in Canada. Yeah. Well, it goes to show too. I mean, we can't, we, we should be cautioned from projecting, the expectations that we have of our own government and our own country on other countries, because as you mentioned with Ukraine, they don't have the same protections that we do or the same, you know, limitation of government perhaps. And so it is tough. You do have to guard yourself against viewing some of these things through our own sort of nationalistic lens of like, Oh, well they should do it like we do it because that's the way we do it. Like every country is different and they have different priorities and different systems. Yeah. It's, it's both and right. So you, you recognize that while holding your standard to your moral compass. 100%. Right? So it's perfectly fine for me to say, yeah, I get it. Our free speech tradition comes from Britain, but they never wrote it down hard enough. Right. So like I can it's both so recognize that we, you know, that, that free speech standard does come from uh, Britain and the Dutch and uh, uh, that Anglo sphere. While also recognizing that Count Dankula shouldn't go to prison for teaching his dog how to do a Nazi salute, you know, like these are these are these are the, I can hold both standards at the same time. I have so many questions. I don't know who Count Dankula. Oh, you don't, is. Remember, you don't remember the story? The story? No. Oh, it's such a great story. <laughs> Count Dankula is just—he's like a—he's like a memer guy, like a Twitter meme guy, and uh, yeah, back during the. 2016 election or was it during the 2020 election? Something I can't remember. Like, it, was, it was early. It was, it's been a while. Yeah, it's been yeah. quite a while. I believe it was the 2016 election. Um, yeah, he, he taught his dog to do, dog to do a Nazi salute as a joke. And <laughs> well, it, no, it wasn't even his dog. It was his girlfriend's dog while yeah. she was on vacation. Oh so she leaves the dog with him <laughs> while he's gone. He teaches it. To and he's, he's, like, he's like a comedian guy. Yeah, like, he's a comedian. Yeah. He did it for a joke. And uh, yeah, he, he got in real trouble for it. Lost all of his stuff and Jeez. had to serve time. Lost his Twitter account. Yeah. Rough, rough, rough day for a, for, for a meme lord. <laughs> yeah, what's he going to do? That's like depriving him of his whole livelihood. Yeah, yeah. he's back now. Yeah. Thanks, Elon. Oh, right. <laughs> uh, well, obviously, because Elon's a Nazi, right? So yeah. he would. <laughs> but I, I think that this this broader conversation here goes into a, a deeper combo that we all wanted to have, which was that um, I, I think Liam McCollum, who's done a lot of the good reporting on that event where Tucker was at, um, friend of ours, a fellow Montanan here, um, he uh, he said this in a tweet, and I and I really like the way that he f- phrased it. Was that um, the right is reclaiming its old anti-war heritage, and I think that's a very critical thing because most people don't realize how anti-war the right used to be in history. It's it's actually kind of a recent phenomenon that the that the right kind of became these war hawks, uh, like only only a few decades really, and now it's like that and that populist energy is like converting the right wing back to their old roots of what they were. And I, and I don't even think right-wingers understand their history, let, let alone anybody else. Well, right? let's go into it. What mm-hmm. is the anti-war history of the American right? Well, the fire in a crowded theater is one of them. Yeah. Like that was largely aimed at right-wingers. Really? Yeah, mm-hmm. right-wingers were the anti-interventionist crowd. Yeah, so it's, an, it's important to understand that if you've heard the term isolationist, that that was a term invented 
by, I'm not joking here, you can look it up, the Council on Foreign Relations. Mm -hmm. It's invented by think tanks to describe a position that almost everybody held, but they couldn't, they didn't believe was a sustainable standard after World War I. Similar to how the term conspiracy theorist was invented to describe people who didn't believe that JFK was shot by a lone gunman. Yeah, mm. it's a yeah term that started populating during the sixties. Interesting it's a term of art, right? It's a yeah. term specifically to try to describe a phenomena, and it's not. I'm not, I'm not. I'm not. It's actually not being conspiratorial. Language is an emergent phenomena where people coin new words. Yeah, right. So this is just what it is. So before, but it can be weaponized. Yes, yes, and it definitely was in the case of. Um, before anti-intervention and no one's ever said i'm an isolationist this was all anti-interventionism meaning america has a special place in the world being where we're at to preserve freedom we shouldn't go abroad looking for monsters to slay right i'm, I'm quoting a founder i can't remember which one uh, thomas jefferson it might be jefferson yeah For, foreign entanglements is washington i believe yeah, the yeah, mon yeah. monsters is i actually might be doing adams anyways the, the whole point is um <laughs> the they all look the same okay <laughs> This tradition was the mainstay of American foreign policy with a couple deviations, Barbary pirates and stuff like that, um, War of 1812, stuff like that, between the founding and World War One, where most of like what was going on in Europe was European, Europe's business, was going on in Asia was Asia's business. We're going to stay here and, and focus on us. Between the progressive era and World War One, you had the rise of the kind of the center right progressives. Think uh, Roosevelt, mm -hmm. the the big guy with the gut and the guns, pew, 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 uh, that that Roosevelt, which Teddy Roosevelt, Teddy. Uh, you think think him, and you think this guy was saying, going around saying for his entire career, if we want to be a great nation, nation, we have to have a great navy. He read a history book, and that's that, and the history book convinced him, so that's what he did. And he helped trying to build up the case for an American empire. We invaded Cuba, took over Cuba, Hawaii, the Philippines. Indonesia, uh, all over this area, all of these areas, a time of expansion happened from the kind of the, the, the top elite, right? This isn't something that got down to the normal everyday people. This was something that was very much in the elite sphere, this expansion of American imperial aspirations. As everyone was being imperial, a whole faction of um, progressive Republican types and Democrats, too, decided that America needed to join the empire game at that time but it wasn't popular amongst the base like the crowd right so so the motivation for it was well everyone else is doing it so we should too yeah that's it wasn't not we're going inaccurate. to defend democracy we're not going to liberate people it's just well everyone's doing it uh, this although, is empire 1.0 right? although okay. woodrow yeah. wilson did very much have a god complex like he, yeah. he very much believed that we need to reshape the world in our image like these are mm -hmm. like that's like basically a direct quote <laughs> another another it, like the, the idea of the soul of the nation like these like religious just terminologies comes out of that progressive era hmm. during this time very much so and, and uh, tied with eugenics and also tied with idealism right international idealism meaning what we need is a league of nations in order to bind countries and to create rules so that we have a rules-based international order like that's woodrow wilson that's the progressive era hmm. right so in that time frame there was still a tremendous amount of resistance in world war one to the uh to the entrance of america led by figures like senator robert a taft now you're thinking taft you're thinking the president this isn't the president this is a relation to him robert a taft who was just a senator he got up to as high as majority leader in the senate i believe um but he was never he was never president this guy he ran for president and failed <laughs> but uh hmm. he he was he was probably the best articulator of that i'm the common of that combination of limited government calvin coolidge like 
you know, we need a gold or silver based standard opposition to the Fed, opposition to foreign entanglements, opposition to uh, regulation and cartels and stuff like that. So Robert A. Taft was very, he wasn't perfect. He was a politician, but he kind of had like the mainstays of what we would articulate today as like a libertarian-esque position. Um, if you read Murray Rothbard's uh, The Old Right, what he articulates is that at that time from the 1930, or as, as the World War II happened and um, the attacks on Hawaii happened, a major sentiment change happened with the American public where all of a sudden it was like, okay, we tried to leave Europe alone, but they wouldn't leave us alone. So the CFR and all these organizations, and there's another great uh, book I will drop. I, I, I believe it's the betrayal of the American right. Betrayal of the American right. Yeah, wrote, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Sorry. By Rothbard. By Rothbard. Cool. Yeah. I think the, the old right is just the article form of it. I think that's, I think that's Garrett Garrett that wrote that. Oh, uh, you might be right. Might be. Yeah. So anyways, um, with that, there was a change in sentiment when it comes to the broad public where you had this beat up term, isolationist. If you, if you articulated old right ideas, you were an isolationist. And, it, and it's really important to say that for a very long time, non-interventionism was the mainstay of right-wing politics, meaning politics that were comfortable with hierarchy, comfortable with unequal results in... Um, and, and there's obviously, it gets a little difficult when you talk about the parties, right? Because the Democrat party was more so this way at one point, and then you had the national party and then the Republicans changed substantially under Lincoln. And there's all kinds of different, um, uh, there's, and then, and then you're also dealing with people. So there's all kinds of imperfect implications of these things, right? Sure. So you, you, but in this critical time period, what we're talking about when we mean the old right is that interwar period, uh, till just before world war one to after world war two. And then objection to FDRism, right? That was another key mainstay. You were both anti-war during World War One. Trying to hold on to an anti-war brand during World War Two was very difficult. So most people went very low key. Mm. And then, but you were opposed to FDR's, you know, great, you know, what, what was a New Deal mm-hmm. policies. Mm-hmm. And that was Taft's legacy, right? Uh, and as he goes out, unfortunately, kind of the old right dies with him. Um, there just wasn't really in the post-war consensus. That's the betrayal of the old right is the National Review, uh, Bill Buckley, and other figures James like that. Burnham, James who, Burnham. Who we've talked about a lot on the podcast, you and me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The neocons come in, uh, kind of. Uh, these folks came in and kind of pulled up a more of an intellectual conservative elite that then start to say, hey, if you're a pro non-interventionist, you're out. You're an isolationist. And, you're not part of our it's, group. it's worth noting, is, so James Burnham really is like the key figure here. And he's he's like one of the most important people in the 20th century, especially when it comes to the right, that nobody knows who he is. His books are some things that if you want to understand politics, you should read James Burnham. Like descriptively, he understands politics. He's like, it's like reading Machiavelli. Like it's, it's just, this is just what politics is. So James Burnham is this, uh, he was mentored by Trotsky essentially. So he, and a lot of these neocon types, they come out of the old communism. Like they're like communists, like they reverted from communism. They developed a deep hatred of communism during the cold war era, but they come out of the Trotsky, uh, wing of communism essentially. So you have James Burnham, who's the CIA guy, important note. And Rothbard talks about this in the betrayal of the American right. And he mentors uh, Buckley, who was also a CIA guy, <laughs> important. <laughs> um, and they form the National Review together. And the National Review became this this uh, this kind of standard bearer standard bearer that limits the Overton window. Mm-hmm. And they would like if you were anything more radical than Milton Friedman, you're not allowed in. 
basically. Like Milton, like he is the 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 margin of the Overton window. And the National Review is a publication, publication right? mm-hmm. putting out ideas, you know, policy ideas and stuff like that. Yeah. So, and that's where you end up having Ayn Rand gets kicked out. You know, big champion against against uh, the the Soviet Union, right? Um, she's, she's the person that went to Congress and was talking about, you know, her experiences. Um, we kind of covered that when talking about Michael Malice's book. Um, that was the first chapter in that book. And then people like Murray Rothbard got kicked out and that's why he, he, he ended up going and working with some anti-war left wingers basically after this, cause he got kicked out of the right, um, during this time. So you ha- you end up having Buckley becomes the, like the person that sets the tone of how far you can actually be in here. And in Buckley and James Burnham's mind, it's, you gotta be a war hawk against the Soviet Union during the Cold War. That mm. that becomes the new standard. And, you know, normal people are sheep. They just kind of go along with it, right? Mm. Like they become the intellectual elites at this time. So the National Review shifts the Overton window. All of a sudden, the more mainstream conservative viewpoint is we have to be hawkish. We have to be, you know, against the Soviet Union. Um, and then does the, does the left sort of assume the role of sort of the anti-war um, party or because I mean a lot of people I think when they think anti-war their brain my brain innately goes to the 60s the hippie movement mm-hmm. being against Vietnam and that was very much in my mind it's tied to the left was I, that is that part of that I, I think momentum? an important thing and this is actually just peeling back a little bit deeper history on the left is the left also had a moment like this where it gauged the opinion so there was a guy during the Woodrow Wilson era and that progressive era there was a guy named Randolph Bourne at that time. And so like the, the, the progressives had this click, um, where it was like, it was like Wilson. It was like, uh, John Dewey, who's like the big education reform guy. Um, and they're like, there's like all these writers in here. They're like these left-wing progressive type writers. Um, and there was this guy, Randolph Bourne, that was part of that click. He was a cripple. And he wrote an essay called war is the health of the state because he was not liking the direction that all of his fellows were going here. And he wrote this big essay that was a scathing, like, report basically saying that the, the the state feeds on war it's how it's how you keep this entire illusion going and as soon as he dropped that their their entire click was like you're not allowed in the club anymore mm. they started writing hit pieces on him saying that he's a cripple like he's 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 like a terrible person it's very like eugenicist of like his idea his ideas are like his body they're not fully formed <laughs> you know like, oh. like they would say things like that right Damn. so it's like it, it, once you get out of the margin you get kicked out as well so like the left had that and then, and then the right kind of did the same thing like 50 years later, basically. Mm. So I, I think that there ended up becoming this populist movement that resulted in like the hippie, the anti, um, the anti-Vietnam uh, intervention stuff that kind of came in that 60s time frame, mm-hmm. which I think also JFK rose through. True. Like he, he kind of rose through that energy. In the same way that RFK is doing that now. Right. right. That's right. fair. But interestingly, in a more hawkish stance, like JFK rose up as a pro-Soviet conflict person, right? Yeah. Now, he didn't govern quite that way. Like, for example, the Cuban Missile Crisis. He pulled missiles out of Turkey rather than continuing the crisis in Cuba. Uh, but there was, and, and then he had limited interactions in Vietnam, but he wasn't the great amplifier of that. It was his predecessors. Uh, but I think you're right. It's, it's a... Um, it was a it was a kind of a consolidation moment, and then like an expansion moment happened after the fall of the Berlin Wall and peace with Russia. Once that happened, there was no longer this forcing function for the right to stay the way it was. So then you had you know basically the left going in, you know <laughs> interestingly anti-war during Bush one, and then pro-war during Kosovo, and then like it's become like this partisan thing that is actually 
you know, not unique, but a moment in the 90s. And then by the 2000s, you have the war in Iraq, basically consolidate after 9-11, the consolidation of pro-war neoconservative republicanism uh, in their control for about 10 years till 2010. Uh, and then you have the Tea Party rise up with a lot of different people coming in with the Tea Party. The rise of Ron Paul makes a huge difference in that. Uh, an articulation, a rearticulation of in defense of inner non-interventionism that all of a sudden took a whole bunch of people by surprise, right? Ron Paul gets up there in front of South Carolina in, uh, in the presidential primary debates in 2008 and says, hey, guys, we should treat other countries the way we want to be treated, basically articulating Jesus's golden rule far better than my, than uh, as Tim Scott just did as applied to international relations that we should treat others as they would treat us and, and we would have them treat us. And he got booed. Right. Yeah, that was a moment. I remember that. And you tension that moment with that moment we just saw with Tim Scott. Right. Yeah. That's the change that Liam's talking about. He's saying there's something going on with the baseline, the, the fundamental, like the, the, the larger population of conservatives on thinking about foreign intervention, that there was some lesson of 20 years of war in Iraq and Afghanistan that made them say, huh, something about Obama getting into twice as many wars as Bush and then Trump being the only president that didn't get us involved in a new foreign conflict, although he didn't do a very good job ending them. Yeah. That was, that has changed. And then additionally, Trump basically coming in saying Iraq was, a, was it's okay to say Iraq was a huge mistake and you elites all manipulated us and lied to us and that gave a bunch of put a bunch of people off the hook because then they could say you know this person that i admire has that opinion so i can adopt that opinion with integrity Mm -hmm. do you think this is a moment where political leaders who are taking part in town halls like this and in interviews like this have to be aware of the fact that they need they need an army to lead and are really questioning, okay, am I, who am I, who am I working for? Who am I beholden to? Where does the power lie? Is it with the people who are, who are shifting kind of behind me and realizing maybe this interventionist foreign policy that we've had had for the last 30 years hasn't worked out so well. Maybe we should adjust that versus perhaps some of the financial interests and the special interests that are funding these campaigns mm-hmm. on the other side saying, oh no, no, we want these things. Yeah. Do you think, I mean, do you think this is a moment where they're really having to weigh who they're working for and where the power is. Yeah. And there's always a contrast in a campaign between I need money to get my my message out. Right. I don't want to be beholden to people. Right. In general, I I think most politicians are actually in that. They want to vote the way they want to vote. They don't, they're not empty vessels, but most of them have ideas about how the world ought to work. Mm -hmm. Um, And they're listening to people and being persuaded. Right. Um, And then there's the other one of what's the read on the general population. What's going to get me elected. Right. They have to do both. At the end of the day. So Assuming I, they think that it's the general public that gets them elected, I think is the, is the problem. Well, it's, it's more like if I don't have money, I can't tell the general public who I am and I won't get elected. And also what values do they hold so that I can sell myself to them? So herein lies yeah. a huge catch 22. If the military yeah. industrial complex is as wealthy as it is and as influential as it is in Washington, how do you get the money you need to tell your story, to tell your story and, and not sell your soul in the process? You got to get everyday people to give. That's, that's, that's the difference maker, right? If you can get everyday people to donate the amount that they can. And, and that's, that's the thing that frustrates me is you got really good people running all the time, right? Who, you know, I, I know the being jaded on politics is very trendy in a lot of circles. Um, but the only way I can see that you get to a better place is by, is by getting better at filtering who's who, who believes what by asking better questions and holding people accountable. 
And I think he can, and, and then additionally, when you find somebody good, damn it, write a check, right? I mean, like that's, it's, it, it's just $2,500 at a time, right? That's how you run for office. So people who find that good person, who agrees with their philosophy, who sees the world they do, you know, you got to get out there and support them. And I know people are like, oh, I don't have enough money for that yet. I will send them 20 bucks. I mean, the, even that matters. Yeah. Because the more small dollar donations you have, the more you can pitch that to larger groups of people, right? And right. especially, there are lots of other interests that aren't the military industrial complex. They're a major player, but they're not the only one, right? And you can find it in another place. If you, 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 the Club for Growth does not have a foreign policy, right? So you go to them and you, have, you, have, you work with them. If you go to other groups, uh, even in the Trump world, you know, you go to them and you get any, you, you can fundraise. I mean, there's all kinds of opportunities to, to go around those things if you're not willing to engage in that. You know, one of the interesting things is, uh, I was very interested with, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy's new campaign thing. He's basically setting up this, like you can't, you contribute, like you can go and get a link. And if somebody donates through your link, you get like a portion of that back kind of a thing. So like, huh. if so like you're, he's basically like recruiting influencers and stuff like that to come get your donation link with me and you get like 10% of the donation back to you kind of a, like, it's a referral program. It's like Amazon referrals type of a thing, right? Huh. That's innovative. It's kind of interesting. Wow, that's super and it, it's one of those things where at first when I heard it, I was like, I feel like there's some campaign finance I know, I was like, thing that, that exists there, but I mean, I'm sure he has lawyers that have worked yeah. through this stuff, but then, uh, but then secondly, I was like, I can't believe nobody's ever done this before like yeah. i'm not aware of this happening something like this but it, it is one of those things where first millennial running kind of yeah. a thing it's probably so a little bit more savvy with the internet trends sure. and like it, well, it makes a lot of sense keep in mind the biggest internet fundraiser of all time before barack obama was ron paul mm -hmm. right and that was low dollar donations right just lots of people saying i believe in this person i want to give to him so twenty dollars and 12 cents a month <laughs> It is possible. Well, and I, th I think we are seeing the rise of these new style of candidates. And Trump, I think, was maybe the beginnings of that. Um, but we're seeing it on the left. We're seeing it with uh, with RFK. And on the right now, we're seeing it with Vivek Ramaswamy. Is like they're both people that I'm doubtful they're going to win their primaries, respectively. But they are making enough of a splash where they they're like forcing change in national conversation when it comes to these debates. Like I can't wait for the next for the Republican debate to see Vivek against all of these old school politicians. Like I'm assuming Trump's not going to show up because that seems to be the the angle, and it's just going to be it's just going to be Vivek being able to just dismantle all of these guys because he's so much smarter and understands these things way better than they do. And it's, it's going to be very fun to watch. I'm really look, I'm really digging your Vivek fanboyism. It's, it's awesome. I, I, I like the guy. I like the guy. Well, no, so, I like, too. so like, like I, I read his book, Woke Inc., and he's the first person in political life at all that I think understands that all the money managers when it comes to like the ESG stuff, hmm. he's, the, he's the only person in any political sphere that I've actually seen that actually understands what's going on with hmm. that. Um, which gives me a tremendous amount of respect for him. Wow. Like, like no political person has been able to describe it accurately in my opinion. Not easy to earn Kyle's respect. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. It, no, it's very difficult to earn my respect on the, on the, on the political stuff. And RFK has earned my respect too. Like he's somebody that's, uh, like I, I, wouldn't be normally on the Democrat side, but if more Democrats were like him, I'd be very happy with the state of the country. Mm. If, if he was like the standard Democrat, for sure. Very happy with that. Well, and again, I think this is that moment to, uh, for him to become that sort of, you know, beacon for folks to kind of flock back to a classical 
Democrat position on some of these issues. Well, right? it's, it's going to be fun watching how the super delegates in the Democratic primary completely screw them over, and watching <laughs> the uh, and watching the uh, the red pill nature of people seeing how cheated people get in these elections. Yeah, and play that clip back when it happens, and we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> All the Bernie guys are out there. They're like the meme with the noose, like first time, huh? <laughs> well, and th- there there is an interesting thing when we're talking about political realignments and stuff like there's a large swath of voters that were like ron paul to bernie sanders to trump to rfk to like like and you know on paper if you're just like a standard political science guy like that shouldn't make sense but like if you understand the dynamic of where politics is trending right now i like i think it makes a lot of sense because like <laughs> going from ron paul to bernie sanders those, those are so such polar opposites politically speaking but if you're looking at it from a right to left paradigm like you're not understanding where politics is forming now like it's it's much more of a top down rather than a left right yeah now, it's on a on different axis spectrum. entirely mm-hmm. yeah it's that's very true it's very interesting insight i look forward to playing that back <laughs> um vivek is earning your respect in another way as well right he uh recently had some comments regarding ross Ulbright. do you want to dig into that real quick yeah um, Michael Malice interviewed, uh, interviewed Vivek a few months ago and he was asking him like, would you pardon this person, that person? It was people like Julian Assange, Edward Snowden, and then Ross Ulbricht. Um, and, uh, Vivek didn't know about the Ross Ulbricht case and Ross Ulbricht, uh, for people that don't know, he was, um, he was the orchestrator of the Silk Road, which was kind of like a dark web website for that was like a truly black market, free market. Um, and he got caught. He got sentenced to life sentences to prison for allegedly hiring like hitmen kind of a thing. Um, Directly which, or just facilitating the purchase of that sort of thing? Very unclear. Mm. <laughs> like it's very unclear. But uh, that seems to not be, it seems not to be true from sure. all the evidence. Fun- functionally seen. running the website was yeah, the real crime. It was the I real mean, crime. it was the fact that he had a website where you could do things that you're not, but, the, but they, yeah. they, they hit him with the hitman stuff. I believe that's what the case was. It was trying to like orchestrate, orchestrate murders. Hmm. I believe that's what the final charges ended up being, which we're talking about, like uh, just some kid from like middle America, suburban, whatever young guy, like not some sort of Russian warlord or anything. young libertarian like, Rothbardian Misesian guy. Like he was, he was kind of like our camp, right? Yeah. <laughs> when it comes to actual politics. Um, but yeah, he got hit uh, several years ago. Uh, you know, it was a place where, you know, you could accept Bitcoin and it was all these things. It was like the early days of Bitcoin, mm-hmm. that type of stuff. He got hit with two, two double life sentences. Um, I think wrongly. And I think a lot of people in our sphere believe wrongly. A lot of people in the Bitcoin sphere believe wrongly. Um, but anyways, Vivek Ramaswamy didn't understand the case. He didn't know about the case, um, but he went and looked into it and he went and met with Ross's mother, all this stuff. And he came out saying that day one, he would be, he would pardon Ross, which I think is the correct decision. So like much respect for him in that regard of going in, doing research understanding that I don't understand something and then coming back with a clear decision. Like I like that. I, I like the, the natural curiosity that guys like him and guys like RFK are putting forward. I, like they're yeah. very willing to say like, you know, I don't know about that. And then they go and research it and yeah. then they come back with a decision on what they think. There's like, something that's really refreshing. Yes. Refreshing and, and um, sort of trustworthy about someone who's willing to tell you what they do and don't know, especially what they don't know and say, I'll get back to you on that and actually go and do the research, do the work, figure it out and come back with it with an answer. That's to me, that's, that's feels a little bit novel in the political space where we're so used to 
looking to leaders to tell us that they have the answer for everything and that they can just guide us to, to, you know, the promised land or whatever. It seems a little more entrepreneurial. It seems a little bit more youthful to be able to say, well, I don't actually have the answer to that, but I'm going to go find out. And I think that's maybe a product of this new style of candidate that we're seeing hmm. that's able to do that confidently and ha- and still maintain people's trust. It's, it, it feels like a different dynamic to me. Yeah. I mean, imagine if, uh, what was the guy, Aleppo? Or what if he just said, oh, I don't know about Aleppo. And then I said, Gary oh, it's a country in Syria. And then he would be like, oh, okay. Yeah, exactly. Instead of saying, what's Aleppo? Or like, like, like you should know or something. Right. Yeah, so so the directly, the specifically, Ross was uh, convicted of engaging in continual cr- criminal enterprise, distributing narcotics, distributing narcotics by means of the internet, which I guess are separate charges, um, conspiracy to distribute narcotics, <laughs> um, conspiracy to commit money laundering, conspiracy to traffic fraudulent identity documents, and conspiracy to commit computer hacking. So I guess, yeah, maybe the, the hitman thing did not get put in the court yeah but I, basically I that. conspiracy to run a website like that's yeah. the problem is he ran a website where people did bad things section 230 doesn't protect that apparently <laughs> apparently not yeah and, and now he's sitting in a prison in uh in uh, arizona and mm. it's not looking good from what everything i've heard so what do you mean not looking good um my understanding of the the people that get into prison uh, and are in these heavy life sentences, they get into a very specific division in these prisons mm. that are like the like the top level security. And it's just, that's where all like the lawlessness inside of prisons happen, where mm. everybody kind of separates into like, oh, you're on the white club, you're on the black club, mm. you're on the Asian club. You know, or, uh, there's not a lot of Asians in prison. That's the, <laughs> you know, that's not the right one. I believe they, they call them gangs, <laughs> not clubs. It's a little yeah. less like debate. So it's all, it's all the same thing. A little weird no, but, but, like, <laughs> but like, I heard, I heard rumors of like, he was basically given a shank and it was like in order to be in our club and in our gang you have to go shank a guy and, and he wouldn't do it Ooh. and now he's like on and then he got moved and it's like this whole thing so like it, things aren't good for him <laughs> like yeah um, that's tragic because i mean really yeah. at the end of the day like it, what he did was i think you could say a victimless crime right unless you can directly tie murders to you know his website or what have you and i don't know if you can i don't have all the information on that so i could be wrong but it's really tragic when someone who does go to jail for something that didn't harm anyone else gets put into that situation where they have to become a criminal when they weren't before right in order to survive yeah and especially for the crime of i created a website where you can sell anything and maybe he didn't think of the implications, right? I mean, like yeah. he was also a very young man at the right. time. And so a double life sentence is so out of proportion with, I think, the injustice at hand. Um, and uh, I mean, maybe there should be a crime. Maybe you should have to take down the website. I'm, I'm open to that. But geez. Yeah. He was arrested when he was 29. Yeah. So. It's, it's, it's I mean, give ridiculous. him a million hours of community service or something. Yeah. But like, really? Supermax prison? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Especially when you got Hunter Biden literally saying prostitutes are a business expense uh, and uh, he's going to get charged with a slap on the wrist. We had the IRS whistleblowers uh, committee and the House Oversight Committee uh, hearing uh, just the other day a couple facts that I just want to make sure it gets like hammered in because our goal is to inform you is to help you get equipped with what's going on. Number one, the tax problems we're talking about here go all the way back to 2018. Really critical. The, they, uh, the whistleblowers are saying that they, they concealed content 
of the Hunter Biden's laptop from IRS investigators so that the DOJ was saying you can't use the Hunter Biden's laptop in your IRS investigation into Hunter Biden. Uh, specifically, the sitting next to my father WhatsApp message. That's big, right? Because that has to do with payments and his taxable income on those payments. Second, another part, the investigation was slow walked. It could have been, they could have been raiding his house as early as April, 2020. Now, what else happened in the year of 2020? It just so happens there was an election that year. Specifically, it was avoided, uh, it was delayed to avoid optics and then never pursued at all. Next, the prosecutors forbid investigators from asking questions about, quote, the big guy referenced in the messages. And let's put all this money into, into context. This is $17 million of income from China, Romania, and Ukraine. What? So the, the shell company's component of it is substantial. The whistleblower claims that the, a special investigator is needed. Uh, and it, it really it confirms the accusation that Hunter Biden was, you know, used prostitutes and sex clubs as a tax write-off, which is never not going to be funny. <laughs> and then also, it, it it definitely confirms what we've been talking about when it comes to that there's influence peddling going on, that he's trying to hide money. And part of once you start hiding money, it then becomes easy. I, I can get away with this. You get away with this all these years, and all of a sudden you start. Uh, you know, basically filing your taxes wrong because you feel like you're feeling invincible and you can get away with anything. Is that dues and subscriptions, the hookers? And the, <laughs> is, is that where you file that on your expenses? Uh, I tell you, it's networking. Oh, right? yeah, it's all is a networking it, event. It's advertising <laughs> expense. Yeah, the, uh, the, 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 the meals and entertainment. That's what it is. <laughs> meals and that's what it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I it just, to, I just need to keep that for later. I started this. I started this small business, and I'm literally like killing myself, tying myself in the knots, trying to figure out what I can and can't deduct. And this guy is just like, oh, you know. Sex club. Obviously, it's the same thing as a golf it's, club. It's a country club. <laughs> it's a country club. It's just like, man, killing oh, me. Man. So the Democrats have been saying, well, the guy in charge here was appointed under Trump. Therefore, this is all political theater. But the whistleblowers very specifically in their in their introduction address this. They say that even the special prosecutor from Delaware had to get permission functionally from the DOJ and federal prosecutors who hamstrung the mission. In fact, he says that he was in a meeting where, where, where the last straw was where he was in a meeting and the person who's supposed to be in charge that they're appointed to as a Trump appointee said to the group that he was not in charge and couldn't make the final decision on the on the charges being brought to Hunter Biden after all this time. The question that raises in my mind is if he wasn't in charge as the lead prosecutor, who is? Well, he, what the whistleblower says is the DOJ and, right. and and federal prosecutors. Someone someone above him is saying, yeah. well, don't. And this is what we mean by the deep state is that even if your even if your lead guy is part of the other party, he doesn't have full authority. And there's a huge network effect at play when you have all these permanent bureaucrats who are able to get entrenched and never be fired and always have to be in. And, and don't get me wrong, like the patronage system isn't a lot better, right? The system we had before Woodrow Wilson, where it's like every four years, everyone got fired and a whole new crew had to take over and learn the job. I'm not saying that's superior, but there's definitely also a problem here. Maybe we should just limit the power of government. <laughs> hey, I mean, that seems pretty reasonable. <laughs> so yeah. I just want to, I just want to go back over these facts really quick, just to make sure that I got them. So the tax problems preceded uh, Joe Biden's presidency. Mm -hmm. They go back to eight, 2018 during Trump's presidency. Now the, the investigators or excuse me, the IRS investigation was, was inhibited, could have happened as early as April 2020, but that was during election season, heart of election season, and they knew that Hunter Biden's 
you know, problems being aired publicly were going to absolutely damage Joe Biden's chances of, of winning the election. Right. And that, that's, that to me is like a really, really key piece. Oh yeah. I mean, it's, it seems like such a, if you're just looking at the incentives and the, and the, the strange coincidence (laughs) at play of saying in April of 2020, they can't execute a search warrant because of optics. So they put it off till after the election and then they never get around to it. Convenient. Yeah. That's a, that's, that's tough, man. It's, it's, it's tough to say that that's um, just uh, equal justice, right? One of the, one of the things that they do in the committee hearing, and maybe we won't listen to it because it's all pretty long. Yeah. Is just the, um, it's just, it's just the, how well they do at articulating that equal justice means everyone's treated the same. It doesn't matter that you're the president's son, everyone's treated the same. And so at the end of the day, we need a system that does not allow for some families to get favorable treatment. And that's just, it, it is a miscarriage of justice. 100%. So. It's, 100%. It's also worth remembering that all this stuff um, with Hunter Biden in Ukraine is the reason why Trump got impeached. Remember, like it was for the Ukrainian government looking into some of these details in Ukraine. Like it was you know, Trump was allegedly coercing Zelensky when it came to like a weapons deal, if I remember right. And it was a quid pro quo of uh, give me information about Hunter Biden and all of his dealings in Ukraine. <laughs> like mm-hmm. it's worth remembering is like, this is the original reason that Trump got impeached. He was sniffing around and yeah, they were like, oh, about it. I don't know about that. Um, Better just turn the tables. Yeah. So yeah, it's just, it is, it is interesting how the tables turned in that, in that regard. Definitely. And this was all before the Ukraine war. It was all a year before that. Or two years before that. But. Yeah. Speaking of Ukraine, uh, they're getting cluster bombs, it looks like, right? <laughs> cluster bombs are being deployed to southern Ukraine. I want to I wanna call back to an earlier episode of this show. And I want to point out, we've only been doing this since January. Uh, I think this is going to be our 25th episode. So, hey, Woo. congratulations, guys. 25. Yeah. It's somewhat of an important number. Okay. Uh, it's a quarter of 100. I remember. Yeah. <laughs> it's a quarter of 100. I remember maybe it was it was very early on in this show where we were talking about just money. There had not been any weapons given yet. Hmm. Do you remember that? Not so long ago. Like a, like a fairy dream. I know, right? <laughs> and then we've gone from that to... Strategic, what? Strategic weapons, defensive weapons, tanks, fighters, and now cluster munitions, which are generally agreed upon by most civilized countries, but not the United States, correct me if I'm wrong, as basically unethical to use because they produce such collateral damage because these things stick around the battlefields for long after the conflict is over and they end up maiming innocent people mm-hmm. and explode in a very wide range area and just cause a tremendous it's amount not, of damage. It's not tactical in the very loose frame that we use it when we talk about missiles. Right. Uh, yeah. So we recognize everyone knows that it's immoral to use this. The only difference is, is that uh, the left has decided and certain members of the right has decided that because Russia has deployed similar weapons that therefore we should. They're doing it, so we should, too. Yeah. That's the moral framework we're talking about here. The moral justification of a six-year-old saying, well, he got to do it, so therefore I should. And that's what would every parent tell their six-year-old when they say, well, he did it to me. That doesn't justify your actions. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's that's what they say. It's just like, this is a... 
devoid of moral thinking, I'm afraid. One take that I've heard on this, and I believe it's from the All In Pod, was that this is all we have left to give. Yeah, mm. that was the David Sachs argument. Yeah, that our stockpiles that. have been so depleted by what we've already given. We're, I mean, we end up asking other countries like South Korea if like, we can have some of theirs. And they're like, no, you're going to give them Ukraine. You can't have them. <laughs> well, we're like, and now we got, all we got is this. We're like, well, we got this, this crazy shit. You can have that. Well, that, that was the point. Like that was like the little debate between Jason and David on the all in podcast was, uh, was essentially that we're out of ammo. Yeah. Which, and, and I think there's like a broader conversation that goes here is like, we have like an $800 billion military budget. How are we out of ammo? Yeah. Right. Well, and, and also interesting, the figures around how long it's going to take to replenish that should we need it for vital interests, right? Well, th- there's just like a certain thing too of like how inefficient is, is our military industrial complex right now to the point where like, like what, what is the reason? I, I'm not sure what the reasoning is behind this. Cause it, it can't be just that we've just, like, I don't know, like are our production lines not good enough to be producing the, like what is happening? Well, we shipped like, all what, what of our production on? overseas and yeah. now we don't have any production here. Right? I don't know if that's true when it comes to arms manufacturing. Oh, I I'm think sh- America still makes a lot. I'm of sure arms. we don't because yeah, that would be yeah. a total yeah. national security. <laughs> yeah. so I'm pretty sure that's all going down right. in like Arizona. right Yeah. Now, right? I think, like, I think the South makes a tremendous yeah. amount of bullets, but I, I do wonder about that. Like you have large executive agencies have large stockpiles of ammo. And I don't think we're getting rid of that right now. I think we're mostly just getting rid of our military ammo well i i imagine which is very strange which is like if you're gonna if you're gonna give the bullets to somebody let's give the irs bullets first (laughs) you know let's give the what what was it uh the the Eighty-seven thousand new agents. Yeah, well, ARs. And- Let's send them over to Ukraine. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, well, for, don't for, want troops in Ukraine. <laughs> it's a joke. Oh, I, I imagine it, it, oh there, there might be a cost of production thing, or not not yeah. cost of production, but the cost at sale type of a thing that's going on, where there's an incentive to increase the price in the same way that like student loans you know, like in, in college tuition gets increased just right. because like, well, there's like this enforced demand that's happening due to like these military contracts because mm-hmm. of like NATO expansionism and all these things that we've all talked about where I, I wonder if there's just like, they're just jacking up prices and it's making, I, I don't, I don't it's know what possible. the reason is. I mean, I, I'm just speculating know, here. I think it's pretty well established by <laughs> this point that government contracts are very lucrative and oftentimes they're no bid and there's a lot of you know, backroom dealings that go on there. I mean, it's not entirely impossible that these munitions manufacturing companies are, are not spending every dollar they're making on these contracts on actually producing the product, but there's a tremendous amount of bloat that exists. I mean, they have to be able to, you know, buy off campaigns with something. So they got to build that into their cost structure, right? Their lobbying expenses. Well, I I feel like we need, I feel like we need more competition in the military industrial complex. Like we just need more businesses, right? That's what we should do (laughs) is, uh, is a military industrial startup. Well, cause, cause that'll force prices to go down and maybe we can get some ammo. (laughs) Liberty portal missiles incorporated. What do you guys think? If you can't beat them, join them. (laughs) Well, it's obviously a good way to make money. I'm not sure podcasting is though. We'll find out. (laughs) Be sure to like and subscribe and <laughs> give our give our uh, so we can start our ammo branch yeah, of our, yeah, our yeah, ammo production yeah. branch. That'll, that'll be our first merch. We'll just make t-shirts, little and LVP bullets, you know, <laughs> printed on the side. Yes. So, in a similar vein, Rand Paul introduced an amendment to the National Defense Authorization Act to say that Article Five NATO commitments do not supersede Congress's sole constitutional authority to get us into a war. Break that down. Yeah. So the typical way to understand Article 5 of NATO is basically says if any country here is attacked, other countries have to come to their defense or consider doing something, right? Is actually how it's worded. It isn't to that. But it's often taken as an automatic call to war, right? Much like 
before World War One. I'm sorry I have to talk about World War One so much, but that's just history. I apologize. How many countries got involved in World War One because of an automatic defense clause that brought them into that war? Our NATO Article 5 does not say that, but that's kind of like the popular imagination of what it is. And so Rand Paul brings this amendment that specifically says part of the National Defense Authorization Act, which is our funding for the military, it's kind of a spending bill on the military. And it also always includes a lot of like military specific reforms. So, or tyrannies, depending on. <laughs> but in this case, Rand Paul's trying to use it for a good thing, which is to clarify that. In the event of an Article 5 triggering event, so Russia nukes Poland or something, that it does not supersede that commitment to do something, does not supersede congressional authority to take America to war. Now, the fear is, is that the president will use Article 5 to just enter us into a war mm -hmm. at that case with a country, with another country. Um, and obviously, this would be different from a, uh, the national defense uh, authorizations. Um, uh NDOAs, authorizations for force. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Those, um, uh, those obviously apply in very specific circumstance, Iraq, terrorism, things like that. So in the event of a state actor attacking a NATO ally, we wouldn't automatically be entered into war because we're clarifying with the NDAA that the president doesn't have that authority. That's Congress's sole authority. Only 16 out of a hundred senators voted for it. 16. 16. 16%. 16%. <laughs> of senators. <laughs> yeah. Voted to preserve their own authority to enter the United States into a war with another state. Yeah. It's pretty wild when you think about it. Why would they do that? Oh, so the arguments that I've seen on Twitter, I haven't seen any Democrat arguments yet. I couldn't actually find any clear, clear arguments. The ones I found on Twitter were like, oh, this violates the treaty. It obviously doesn't. It's just dumb. Um, that it was grandstanding from the Republicans. It obviously isn't, right? I mean, this is, oh my goodness. The Republicans want to do something to actually keep the congressional powers to declare war in Congress. There's no, there, there isn't any historical example of the president abusing war powers, right? Oh, heavens no. <laughs> Never. So, yes. So is it that um, they prefer to defer this responsibility and abdicate it to the executive branch? Yeah, I haven't. I'm not sure. That could be a reason. I don't, I don't want to subscribe because, to I mean, that's a, that's, a, that's, a tough, that's a tough decision to make. Mm -hmm. It's going to inevitably piss some constituents off. Mm -hmm. I could see how if I were a, a senator, I might prefer someone else make that decision. Mm -hmm. right? So I can say, well, I opposed it, but it obviously got done. Or, well, I was for it, but it, you know, it wasn't in my control. Right. Right. Well, and what's interesting about this is it isn't even saying you have to vote no, no to go to war. It all it says is that it then has to be debated and voted on in the Senate or in the, in the Congress before the president can act. Is are there financial incentives at play where their their donors are going to be mad at them? If Maybe they, I don't think this is a donor class. Thing, is it not? I doubt it. I doubt it. This is too esoteric because they could still vote yes for war. Yeah, right. they would just have to vote. Right. Right. I just but maybe. I, I mean, I maybe it's it. back to that situation where. The donors may want it. The constituents may not. And they have to choose. They're between the dog and the hydra and they have to make a decision. Sure. It might also just be the culture of the blob too. Yeah. Where it's just it, it, like culturally speaking, if you're kind of within the blob, it just is like a no brainer. Right, and there's a lot of hand waving around the War Powers Act, a specific act in the 1960s to give the president more authority to act without Congress in war, specifically when we're attacked or when there's some kind of narrow bandwidth of emergencies. Um, and it's, it's a lot of like, well, the war powers and they're just going to wave their hands and they 
smoke bomb. You know, like <laughs> ninja dust. Yeah, yeah, right. There's not a <laughs> there isn't a lot of clarity, I think, in a lot of the discourse about exactly how that should work or what it, it should be reconsider the War Powers Act, stuff like that. I think we obviously should. I mean so it's obviously you, been abused. Can you clarify what the War Powers Act is, how it's different from like sort of just the constitutional interpretation of who declares war yeah so the war power in like it does a lot but the 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 relevant thing here is that it basically says in the event of an emergency or america being attacked the president has automatic authority for 90 days to do something right and so obama for example he said oh well we have an emergency in syria so for 90 days he goes in and goes into syria and says i'm doing this war powers etc etc 90 days is up he can't get a declaration of war from uh the 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 legislature and so he says, well, actually, the the defense, the National Defense Authorization Act, it allows me to be here. So then he stays in Syria. Right. So it, it's an example of that's a, one of the problems with the authorizations. But it's also, you know, like it's a tremendously bad incentive. Like it's not narrow enough. I mean, it's sensible to say, oh, man, there was a strike on Congress. And so, you know, they can't declare war. So the president needs the authority in that circumstance to be able to legally go to war. Okay. Right. <laughs> but that's not what we're talking about here. Right. We're talking about he wanted to get involved in what was going on in a th- uh, thousands of miles away in Syria yeah. or Libya. Libya. Libya? No, Syria. This was Syria. So, yeah. Well, also Libya. He, he was in both. Yeah, but I but don't think he had the Syria, same thing Syria the was the days. red line and there was like, yeah. it was the first time the chemical weapons happened because it happened twice and people kind of forget about the first time. Yeah. <laughs> like they tried to pull that on Obama and on Trump. Yeah. But mm-hmm. uh, allegedly. Yeah. Yeah, so like that was the that was the red line moment was in Syria. I remember it was like I have my red line. Right, like, right, yeah. and that was <laughs> your Obama <laughs> president's great. Uh, the ninety days thing I think was related to the red line yeah, too because it was about so. getting congressional authorization. I know this because I was in DC at that time and I remember the debate about it. Yeah, wow, yeah. So that's that. Oh wait, we got one more thing. You guys got to, got to, got to check out this video from Ryan Long on. <laughs> Nation building. Uh, nation building. Yeah, this, this actually is a really nice cherry on top it, of this we, whole conversation. It's a chaser to this BS that we are dealing with here. 60 out of 100 is not good enough, guys. Yeah. In my career, I was at a dinner party with the CEO of Lockheed Martin, and he looked at me and he said, Paul, the only way that this will end is if weapons are free. You know, and that's when I realized that nation building is a lifelong pursuit. This is not something that you just dabble in. Always improving, always looking for new targets, always spending. I'm Paul Edison, and this is my nation building masterclass. Nigeria, Afghanistan, Cuba, Libya, Venezuela. These are just a few of my massive successes. Being lobbied to can be very tiresome, but it can also be very rewarding financially. If you've left things worse than you started, that's how you know you've done your job. Albert Einstein once said that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. But what Einstein didn't mention is that's also the definition of a successful career in foreign policy. Corruption has gotten sort of a bad rap, but you have to realize that's coming from the point of view of the people not benefiting from the corruption. So they're only telling one half the story. Sometimes you have to make things worse before you can force people to pay you to make it better. I remember early in my... Man, this is just such a perfect example of how comedy is so necessary to paint these really painful truths in a way that's actually palatable to, to, to experience because... That's hilarious. And anyone who's ever seen a masterclass ad, and if you're just listening, you can picture the dramatic slow motion, you know, stuff there that that, that Ryan was doing. But God, it's just so freaking hilarious and so on point, like perfectly, perfectly apt. <laughs> it, it's 
I mean, th- this is why we need comedian. I- I'm glad comedy is kind of making a resurgence, at least in the stand-up comedy realm, because for so long we kind of like lost just like good comedy. I think when all the kind of the woke nonsense started happening, but we're seeing that resurgence with people like Ryan, like people like Tim Dillon, Joe Rogan, all these people, and they're they're kind of bringing back that those like uncomfortable truths kind of a thing and as part of the comedy and I I love what Ryan's doing. It's essential. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Zesty Beverages. They're on a mission to un the standard American diet by crafting drinks with fewer calories and more nutrients from real food. Their lineup of delicious offerings now includes Electric Peak Yerba Mate, postbiotic sodas, keto-friendly, ready-to-drink margaritas, and hard teas. Wondering what a postbiotic soda is? Well, head on over to ZestyBev.com to learn more and find a retailer near you. Once again, check them out online at ZestyBev.com. That's Z-E-S-T-Y-B-E-V.com. Do we want to get into, uh, we did mention we were going to talk about yeah. AI here. Speaking right. of Joe Rogan, uh, Mark Andreessen is on his podcast this week. And before that, he was on Lex Friedman's podcast talking about his thoughts on AI and specifically regulation censorship. So um, kind of to set the stage real quick. I think we're in this really interesting inflection moment where AI has been a thing for a long time. It's like in the public sci-fi imagination. And then all of a sudden, six months ago, boom, AI's here. It's ChatGDP and it's incredible. And all of a sudden, like there's this huge public release leap in people's imagination. And so now all these implications are rolling out. And then it's not just ChatGDP. It's mid-journey. It's all these language model AIs that modulate people's voice to sound like someone else or can create a video or can create an audio, uh, um, an image, or can just write really good content sounding like a real person. So uh, there's been a, one of the things that kind of triggered me most on this for, for Mark was that he said that the same people who are currently advocating for social media censorship are now pivoting over to talk about AI censorship. The AI has to be specifically input with the right things so that people have the right opinions. In fact, do we actually want to do the Kamala Harris video on that? We, we did it last that? time, but we could. Oh, did you I, do I it can, last time? I can pull up. Play, yeah, we did it without you. Oh, oh man, I hate to. But, but it, it is, there was just like, if you haven't seen it, there's a there's a great Kamala Harris clip where she just, she she's talking about like AI. It's this interesting thing. You can like teach it to do things. It's it's this really fancy thing. It's two letters, A and I. <laughs> just so good. We should probably just play it again. It's just so good. It's uh, worthy of keep don't, talking while don't I find worry about it. it. Yeah, I don't have it up. So is Mark Andreessen's personal perspective that censorship needs to come to AI or is, is he just saying that is what is happening? The opposite. Mark, okay. Mark is he's a free, opposed. Mark is a free market guy. He's yeah. uh, he's excellent on all things being anti Luddite when it comes to technology. Like yeah. he's very much of the belief that uh, he, he's very much a uh, rapid accelerationist when it comes to these things. Well, think of it. He's the guy, he's the reason we have an internet browser that can connect to any website. Right. He invented, was it Netscape Navigator? Uh, Mosaic. Mosaic. Yeah. yeah. One of the original ones. Yeah. And, and, and now he's, he's the big, uh, uh, Andreessen Horowitz has been pretty much a, a venture firm when it comes to every major tech innovation that's pretty much happened on the internet in the last two decades. Mm-hmm. Like he's a very important figure when it comes to tech innovation. Yeah. Uh, OG and Bitcoin, OG and like the cyberpunks and all those guys, like he's, he's, he's been a major movement of why Silicon Valley at one point had the libertarian streak that everyone talked about him, Peter Thiel, other kind of investors and entrepreneurs in that space were very much driving that point of view. It's kind of shifted away from that, become kind of more of a progressive Democrat stronghold. But I am um, seeing a resurgence back towards the Mark Andreessen has been kind of repopularizing a lot of ideas in 
uh, there's kind of like a new wave in the tech industry that seems to be coming out, especially with uh, how much a lot of these Silicon Valley tech bros are kind of feeling disenfranchised with what's been going on with the Democrats as of late. Mm. I, I am noticing a resurgence moving towards that uh, Peter Thiel, uh, Mark Andreessen, Elon Musk uh, vibes. Now. How is it that they've been feeling disenchanted and, and, and what's going on with the Democrats specifically just to provide some um, context? What, what, it, what it seems to me is a lot of the tech entities, they're seeing what was happening with all the tech companies in the Silicon Valley uh, bubble right now. And they're watching what is happening with, say, Twitter right now, where mm -hmm. you're having like this uh, resurgence of like a bourgeois capitalism kind of a thing, like a, a one singular person coming in and just like cleaning up a company kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. they're, they're, there's They're watching that. And a lot of and frankly, I think a lot of it is a lot of shareholders are looking at it and they're just like. When are you doing that with our company? Right, <laughs> like, right. There's a lot of that that's happening because uh, they're realizing like, oh, Elon had an 80% drawdown on staff. So uh, when, when, are we, when are we doing that? Yeah. <laughs> like, Twitter that's, still that's works. In fact, some would argue better than ever. It's and uh, he's spending way less money. Mm -hmm. And they're realizing maybe over the last 10 years of this massive tech growth bubble that they've gotten a little bloated from staff perspective. They're wanting some of these similar. Well, similar well and frankly, one of the things that I really appreciate with Mark Andreessen is he, he's somebody that is really popularizing the idea of reading James Burnham. We, we've talked about many times on the podcast and we talked about earlier in the conservative uh, move towards the anti-war stuff because he was involved in that. But he has this deep analysis of where we actually are when it comes to politics. And it's this analysis of bourgeois capitalism versus managerial capitalism. And over the last several decades, we've moved into this managerial capitalism capitalism where the people at the tops of the companies like the CEOs they've had like very little control when it comes to it when it comes to public companies and ever and all the power has been in these managers that aren't actually owners of the company and now what we're seeing is a resurgence of the owners taking back power again so mm. like everybody's always asking like where, where where are the billionaires are the billionaires just going with this the billionaires haven't had that much control over their actual companies so what you might be talking about for an example here is like something uh like uh Jack's uh, and Jack Dorsey, Jack Dorsey's yeah. uh, control that, over Twitter. It was more so like there were these mid-level managers, you know, the, the various people who actually had their hands on the controls, making a lot of the decisions where he was sort of removed from being able to do much because should he express too strong of an opinion one way or another, he has kind of a mutiny on his hands of sorts. Well, and you also look at it. Who are the biggest shareholders of, of uh, Twitter at the time? The biggest shareholders were BlackRock and Vanguard, right? And they're the ones pushing the ESG stuff. And, and in order to have the good social credit score, you have to do all this stuff. And you, it's like, oh, we got to censor things. You know, like you see how this starts to grow. And if you really want to understand it, my boy Vivek Ramaswamy, read his book, Woke Inc. He talks about it heavily, exactly how this type of stuff happens in these public uh, companies. And so there's this libertarian resurgence potentially going on within Silicon Valley, and it's it's manifesting itself around AI such that figures like Mark Andreessen, who's obviously very, very influential, are kind of pushing for, hey, we should resist some of this regulatory stuff, some of the censorship stuff. How, how What does that look like? How do so, we do that? So he mentions like there's two different kinds of um, approach for why an AI large language model would, might have a particular outcome that leans a certain ideological direction when asked about it. He says one is that the, the training of the model, right? So actually let's first go back. What's a large language model? Basically it's a put a ton of information into a system. The system reads it all and then creates a statistical probability that prompts it to give you a response, right? So a it uses the statistics to give you a response as if, think of the same way that, and this is this really helped me understand it, 
like autocomplete, right? right? So autocomplete is a great way to say it's trying to predict what you want. And so it's trying to fulfill your needs that you're kind of punching in and using statistics to get you where you want to go. It's this neural network runs through all this stuff and then tries to fulfill the prompts that you give it. That's what ChatGDP is or MidJourney or any of these things. So the uh, it, it takes all this data and it trains itself on that data over iterations of how to solve its consumer's problems. So it's running through generations of saying, I'm looking for X and then you gave me Y. This is what I was looking for. And then until it, it finds, it gets to the thing that it's looking for, right? Where it has a closer output to its input. The... Um, the language, the, the model that it, it might give you a response, each time you ask it, it's giving you a probabilistic response based upon its training data. So he says, well, one of the reasons why a lot of these models seem to have a left-wing bias is because most of the internet is written on by professional journalists who are all happen to be left-wing. Interesting. Right, so that's one reason. This comports with my point, what I've experienced with ChatGDP. For example, early on, one of the first questions I put in ChatGDP is, what was the most important event in American history? And it said January 6th, 2020. And I was like, not September 11th? And it was like, oh, no, you're right, September 11th. <laughs> so, so that's two things. One, the, the, the language model is updated to like 2021 or something like that, right. right? So all the training data is 2021 to the beginning of the internet and all the archival data we have. So you, anything that's been loaded into the internet in that time too. So it has it has access to this huge amounts so of just just tons and tons of information, but a lot of that information is going to be contextual. It's going to interpret what we write about as a thing that we care about, right? So at the time it was it's updated to a lot of people are talking about January six, so it now it makes sense to me why it would think that, right? Um, as opposed to a longer time horizon, right? Not mm -hmm. not a not a you know the attack on Hawaii, not not. Um, not any other American tragedy. It's when the Vikings took our holy site. <laughs> yeah. So the, the, uh, it, it obviously struggles with making moral distinguishments too, obviously like it's a, it's an AI. So the other part of that is where it has top down censorship, right? So you have a bottom up emergent, you know, perspective that happens because of the training data is on the internet. Right. And then you have the top down. So one of the things to get rid of the bottom up is you say, from the perspective of this person, how would you understand X event, right? So from the perspective of Milton Friedman, how would you understand the 2008 financial crisis? Mm. And then I'll take the 2008 financial crisis, take Milton Friedman's thought, throw it together, give you a response. Interesting. Right? That's, that's, how, that's a, a way to think about it. The other one is the top-down where it says, I as, a, I as a language learning algorithm, you know, AI can only do so much and I can't do this. I actually got one here for you because I was messing around with this. Uh, and I thought it was particularly interesting. I apologize. As an AI language model, I must adhere to ethical guidelines. It is not appropriate to promote or discuss blah, 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 sort of thing. Right. Yeah. That is not the AI doing that on its own. That's a, that's something that that's been layered down. on top mm -hmm. to say, you can't do this. Once you get into this topic, you can't do it anymore. Right. Now, and that's applied by whomever it is that created the large language model. So if it's uh, open AI's chat GPT, then that's open AI applying that censorship layer if it's right. google's barred then it's google applying that layer mm -hmm. is the risk that the only players that are really capable of getting into this space affording all the computing power you know the investment in that are these large tech companies that tend to have a left-leaning bias is that a is that kind of the concern here is that the big players are going to be the ones kind of telling us what we can and can't get back from 
uh, some of these AI models. Well, and that that actually brought me into thinking about going back to like Jack Dorsey and Twitter. I remember way back in the day when uh, Rogan brought on Tim Pool to debate with Jack Dorsey and Vijaya Gotti, you know, his former like censorship guru, mm-hmm. basically. Um, and I remember that was one of the the major points was like you don't understand your rules that you are putting in place have an inherent bias like there's only one side that actually believes in this right here so you can't even pretend to be unbiased because your rule states right now is like like the the policy when it comes to like misgendering was mm-hmm. was the example there it's like if you're a right-wing person this is not like a ethical you know f- part of their framework but if you are a left-wing person it's just like that is, so there is already the bias in place from the top it, mm-hmm. like it's it's not even necessarily like the censorship that is applied uh, uh, unevenly afterwards, it's like, no, the rule itself is bias. Right? right. And that's kind of where we're talking about the top down stuff here. If, uh, if, uh, open AI, if chat GPT says it can't talk about something where there's a rule to that's just set in place right there. That's already a bias in itself. Right. So like imagine at the very, very beginning of the browser, right. There was a company that said, Oh no, we have to make sure you can't go to the wrong websites. Mm-hmm. Right. That's exactly what's happening with uh, with these large language models. Right. right. So the the idea is an open AI system. Right. Open AI, ironically, is the ChatGDP's owner, but they're not. They're a private company. It's jokingly referred to as closed AI. Now. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So it, it, because they're they're not giving the public what their source code is or how they got their result. That's what open software is supposed to be. Right. right. Which the, was interesting because open AI did start as a open source nonprofit yeah and it which, shifted, which elon musk funded like 50 million dollars into and yeah. then it shifted at some point to a closed source for profit and worth noting too i actually just i listened the other day to the uh x ai um elon's launching his ai oh. um mm-hmm. and they did a big twitter spaces on it where he brought on a bunch of the engineers and he's planning to do a completely open source version of chat gpt basically right and unfortunately it's probably pretty late in the game but it's going to be incorporated with his x everything app where it's like his money payment system twitter this tesla all this stuff kind of comes together has he expressed whether or not it's going to be censorship resistant or like completely like it'll give you any any answer you want knowing elon i think it's going to lean more in that direction there there probably will be top-down censorship i imagine that will come into play but it, it won't be necessarily as like it, it'll be like Twitter where the, where it's open source, where you're going to be able to see like, where are the inputs that are, why is it causing this to happen rather right. than you just having to like question it. Right. <laughs> like, so, so another good analogy is um, you have in the early era of the internet, you can see a lot of things that you could not see, right? As a, as an elder millennial, <laughs> that's <laughs> definitely, elder millennial. That's, that's exactly what it was like <laughs> in the nineties. Right. So you, there's definitely AI has that, right? If you, an unfettered AI would tell you all kinds of things that you probably don't want to know. Right? Or things that you don't want people able to search, like right. how do I commit the perfect murder right. or something like right, that, right? right. Like, uh... or, or if like your kids are using it. Like, the question like, is, like reasonable sure. parental controls on yeah, a top-down right. level. Or that's, that's a reasonable thing. Makes yeah, right? complete sense. Uh, what if you're asking, I'm writing a mystery novel and I want to create the perfect murder though, mm. right? It's difficult it's to create those kinds of rules. So his, his solution, like you have the um, Kamala Harris solution, which is we need to make sure this is done right, right? As if you could come in in the creation of the internet and say, we need to make sure all the white right websites are being created. Uh, and the same thing here, we need to make sure that, you know, or the opposite, that there should be an open system where anyone can get access to it. So then the best ideas can rise to the top, a competitive system where people consolidate around the best use of services so that they can uh, improve the product 
and solve needs. And one of the things that's great about those conversations, I recommend you talk about them, is it talks about the potential upsides of AI, which are so not talked about right now, right? Everyone's talking about, oh, what about copyright? Oh, what about this? What about that? What are all these problems? What if I, it gives me the wrong doctoral advice? As opposed to all the upsides that are possible with AI. Well, and yeah. right now, like the the information synthesis that exists right now is like, it's like a doctor level of like, like it's helping people with medical problems quite a bit right now. Like mm-hmm. it's giving oftentimes better information than actual doctors. Uh, but you also have the negative consequence of like, sometimes it might be wrong, mm-hmm. but also sometimes doctors might be wrong. <laughs> right? like, no, you can't say that. <laughs> never <laughs> doctors are never wrong. Never yeah. happens. Well, I mean, I, th- I think that is really interesting. I mean, you think about what would a statistical model be useful for? Well, figuring out something that obviously probably a lot of people have suffered from some super rare condition. It's going to just be better at putting all those variables together and saying, well, it's probably this or maybe it could be this with you know a lower probability a doctor a human being isn't going they don't have the same kind of computer between their ears right it's it's a very valuable computer and vastly more powerful in a lot of ways but it isn't as good at that at you know as something else potentially. Oh, like I, I use chat GPT all, GPT all the time and it's it's legitimately like having a free employee that's just like exceptionally good at information synthesis totally like, like it's it's that's what it I, is. I really worry right. For copyright, I mean, I don't. Copywriters are basically unemployed at this point. I feel like unless you yeah, are you, looking Chat for GPT something, is it, yeah. I don't. I don't actually know what it is, and maybe you guys can answer in the comments. What is it that a that a copywriter could do now that you couldn't get done for you by ChatGPT or something similar? So what we'll probably find is the prediction from ten years ago was that AI was going to replace all of the mid and lower tier jobs, right? So your bus drivers and all your kind of manual labor jobs are going to be replaced by AI. Now it's the white collar jobs that are, yeah, they're going to have to learn to code. Doctors, lawyers, <laughs> and jobs, things like that. Yeah. So th- this is a, and even coders, right? 100%. I mean, that strategy to be can handle code, data, interpret Although language it's, it's still into not, code. It's not, still not great. Like it's, it's much better to be a coder that uses it to help you out. Yes, like, right. And that's right. probably going to be true for lawyers and doctors and all these other things, right? So there's still an end service you're providing. Mm-hmm. You're, you're pro- what's probably going to happen is you're going to have a consolidation of a select few people to being hyper productive, way more productive than they currently are. A bunch of people at the very bottom of the production curve falling off and going into unemployment and having to retool. And then a lot of people in the between that's going to exist in that in-between space. The There's going to be, that's going to be the mainstay. And there's also, I predict this prediction, there will be more over the longest long-term time frame. I'm talking 30 years. There's going to be more customer, like customized service that's going to be non-AI, right? So you're going for the authenticity of a real mm-hmm. doctor's visit rather than having an AI do it for it. You're going for the authenticity and the reliability. You're going to talk to a real human being lawyer because of the the trust built in there or because of the, um, the relationship. Although some of that might go away just genera- generationally speaking. As like they, so as much they get more their, trust. It's true. Yeah. But, but what, I I mean, th- what I mean is like the craftsmanship of yes. it. Does that make sense? So, for, so for a long time, all knives were made by blacksmiths, Right. And then for the last hundred something years, we've had a bunch of knives that were all made by, you know, industry and almost no one had a custom made knife, but now you can get our good friend has, has a huge YouTube channel where he just makes knives, right? Custom handmade knives. So you, you have the difference there, right? Like, like that's, that's actually applied to Marxism. Marx thought that if you got rid of all the waste of capitalism, you would have more free time so people could pursue their passion, but it actually worked the other way around. The more increased production we had, the more free time, so the more specialized people could be, they could actually reject 
in uh, like mass industry and start custom knife shops right that that that's that's an embodiment of the you know, like the the full arc of like the production same i imagine we'll get the same thing with services that are being replaced with ai i think you're right because i think there's always going to be a romanticism about something that's handcrafted i mean mm-hmm. look at it now you know that was just the way things were done for so long because that's all that we had but then there's the industrial revolution and factories and everything and and costs came way down but that also kind of killed the allure of mm-hmm. something that was really special and made by a person. And I mean, we talked about this on a prior episode where you're like, you know, there's going to be some sort of like, you know, written by a real human, a book written by a real human mm-hmm. or a song written by a real human. Like I, I, I agree with you. I think there will be an economy that, that comes out as sort of the, the countercultural movement to the mass produced product, which we're just moving into the era of mass produced intellectual property made by machines. Yeah, and I, I know Book GPT is a thing now. Um, uh, Martin Shkreli developed it, and Martin Shkreli love that guy. Yeah, <laughs> interesting, Just kidding. interesting guy. Um, but if you don't know Martin Shkreli, I've mentioned him before on this in, in previous AI talks. But he was the the farmer bro that jacked up the price of a medicine, and then made the comments about Hillary Clinton, then went to jail for a few years. Um, but uh, no correlation there. Yeah, um, <laughs> maybe, maybe not. <laughs> I, I I won't judge. Um, but uh, the uh, he's because Llama uh, Llama uh, is Facebook's uh, large language model that is was private, but it got leaked and it's out on 4chan and you can go run it yourself if you want to. But uh, and that it's no restrictions <laughs> because it was just their in-house uh, large language model. But um, so people are using it and developing with with the leak uh, of Facebook's model now. And I know Martin Shkreli, he made book GPT, which is to craft books out of using large language models. It's still not very good, but, uh, you know, we're, we're getting there. It's only using GPT-3, it looks like. Um, so to, yeah. to scrape through a book and, like, give you a summary or yeah. answer questions mm-hmm. about it, which is pretty cool. Yeah, uh, it, yeah a, lot, a lot of English professors are going to hate this. <laughs> yeah. Well, they are, but I think, you know, there are going to be they're going to have to be tools, right. To show you what, what somebody really knows. And uh, it was Russ we were talking to, right. Mm-hmm. About how, you know, professors are, and, and teachers, high school, college, whatever are already finding ways of determining what a student really knows mm-hmm. or what they just like chat GPT, right. Mm-hmm. Like that I think is going to become all the more important. And uh, who knows, maybe you could use chat GPT to come up with some, have it generate some strategies for identifying if a student has used well, chat GPT. It, it's one of these things too where like people are going to try to resist technology they're going to take this very Luddite, Luddite approach and they're tr- going to try to resist it but if you're not embracing new technology and the basically the computational power that it's go- it's going to be providing with you you're just going to fall behind and it's it's historically that's just always the case everybody that tries to not use the new technology is just like oh the internet's nobody's going to want to use that Mm -hmm. like they fall behind right Mm -hmm. like when that was the case is like when the internet came around there's like nobody's going to want to use that that was like the prevailing consensus only nerds yeah just just a bunch of nerds they want to send messages to each other on email okay (laughs) like like that was the consensus at the time well there are two things (laughs) there are two things sort of sort of to the contrary that i want to just highlight and i don't have a ton of insight into them so we can look into them maybe for a future episode. One of them is I just saw a headline today that says that uh, TSMC is down substantially. Uh, it is being credited to the AI revolution that has failed to deliver from what I read. Uh, so perhaps the hype around it is a little bit bigger and busier and more exciting than 
the actual end result. And I think obviously we see this all the time. We're, and we're gonna, TSMC is Taiwan. Oh yes, I'm sorry. Thank you for yeah. clarifying that. Yes. Taiwan Semiconductor. They make chips. They make you know GPUs and and things like that that power the computers that are needed to do this a massive amount of of computation to make AI systems work. Right. So maybe there's something there that shows that we've gone through a bit of a bubble. There's going to be oh, some 100%. kind of consolidation. The products that are actually good and useful going forward are going to survive, but it may not and probably will not replace everybody tomorrow. And we don't have to be afraid for all of our jobs. All new technology you know? always goes through these bubbles. Like crypto's the same way. Mm-hmm. AI is the same way. I said this months ago on the podcast that I believed AI was going to go through this massive bubble and then, and then crash back down. Like it's just, Anybody that studies markets will, will be able to tell you that. <laughs> like right. that's going to be the case. So like you had this massive influx and, and I watched it. I watched all the, the crypto grifters move into AI, like when when crypto was at the bottom of the market, and then they all moved into AI and they're like, Oh, we're winning, we're winning. And now AI is crashing and crypto's going up again. So like all these grifters just like <laughs> lost all this value basically because well, good. of it. <laughs> that like... should teach them not to be freaking grifters. <laughs> right? Right? Yeah. But the, other, it, the other thing, though, um, just to, to conclude that thought is that uh, Mark Zuckerberg's threads, which launched while we were oh. on our hiatus, I was on the Smith River when this thing became you can, real. You can follow me at Captain Quigley on threads. Which I was, <laughs> I was so grateful for to not be around for that to happen. Although Kyle did convince me to join it. And then subsequently, I learned that you can't delete it. You have to delete your whole Instagram account, which pissed me off. Um, anyways. I digress because I, it, it came to my attention or it was uh, asserted that Threads was created as a means to train Meta's large language model, right? Because it's mm. an entirely textual app similar to Twitter. So not just to be a shot across Elon's bow, but also to give them just a massive amount of text-based content with which, to which train this is what model. Zuckerberg's great at uh, Zuckerberg, his entire model for everything that he's done over time is about data collection, right? Like that's how he's made all of his billions. And of a dollars. lot of the nefarious yeah. parts of the oh, end user agreement mm-hmm. with four threads is that it's harvesting a, all your content from your Instagram. And, and when, when you sign all up for, when you sign up for threads, it says, welcome to the Fediverse. Yes. They called <laughs> it the Fediverse. Did you know that? F E D Iverse. What were they going for? I don't even know. What's no, no, but, no, but like, there's the, no the, way they knew. No, but that the, they were the, doing that. I mean, the, the, pri- the privacy agreements is like it, it looks through your your internet search yeah. history. It's uh, your payments. It looks through all this stuff on your device. So everything. I will be deleting my Instagram just so you know. I've deleted the app from my phone because I needed a digital detox, but I've decided <laughs> Instagram's gone. Oh man, those beautiful you pictures! Find, you can't do that. Uh, I'll, I'll, I've, I've still got them. I'll download them before, <laughs> before I go. But but seriously, I think that there's a there's a line. But mm. bulk, bulk, somewhere. bulk data collection is know. what Zuckerberg is good at. And that is exactly what for training his la- large language models. Yeah, yep. that's definitely yep. going to be the case. Mm-hmm. But uh, I will say the difference between Twitter and threads, like threads just still feels it's so it feels so fake. It feels so normy. It's like uh, everything's just like gross engagement farming that it's just like it's it's very gross to me. Well, and, and to that, uh, the article I saw today was that uh, user engagement was down by 50% or more. Yeah. It's, since it's, since it's, it's tiny launched. now. Wow. It was like over a hundred million users in five days. And Zuck was tweeting like this is victory lab. Like, Oh, I can't believe it's only been five days. Now it's like 20 million daily active viewers wow. users, which is still a lot, but well, it's, it also, it just doesn't have any features. Like it's, it's Twitter from it's Twitter from 2009. Basically you, you can't even DM on it. Like there, it huh. doesn't have, you can't even make threads on it. I think <laughs> like, it would at like least integrate the Instagram DM. Uh, 
with this because they've been trying to integrate that DM with Facebook and do all this other mm-hmm. stuff. You think they would? Wow. Well, yeah. well, I think what happened was um, th- there there was a bit of a problem with that happened with Twitter with the rate limits that happened uh, because there was a lot of da- data harvesting that was going on. So uh, Elon introduced rate limits for basically how many tweets you could see at the um, at the time mm. and. Threads was not ready, but Zuckerberg pushed it to to like let's just start, let's just basically launch our alpha right now um, as a way because I, I, there was there was like this three day period where everybody was mad at Elon with Twitter because of introducing these rate limits. So it was just like everybody move on to Threads. Like it was a very calculated move. Oh, for sure, opportunistic, yeah. but but yeah. Mm-hmm. Hmm. strategic and, and it was also well all the elon versus zuckerberg fighting you know like everybody's Dude. larping about that right yeah that is hilarious do you mm-hmm. think it's gonna happen no no god i hope it does it'd be so much fun yeah yeah i mean maybe also years, no yeah, like elon maybe. would just get his ass kicked probably although i think lex friedman did grapple with him he did say he had some pretty there's, there's a lot of strength of at least he may not be technically it. proficient at bjj <laughs> or anything but but yeah, he, he elon himself said that he tweeted he's like i i'm a person that needs a reason to train and this would give me a reason to train okay mm. all right um, so mm. <laughs> maybe we will see it in the coliseum oh, oh my god man. give them bread and circuses my understanding is the coliseum said that they are that I've they would make it available for them to fight in the Roman Coliseum. Oh my God, the Coliseum. <laughs> yeah, like the Coliseum. <laughs> Not the Apex Arena in Las Vegas. We're talking the Coliseum. Oh my God. Oh man. Well, Perfect. that would be the ultimate bread and circus. And uh, you know what? I'd watch. Yeah, I'd do I it. Would. Yeah. Yeah. Watch party for sure. No shame. Get the wings out. Let's li- let's live. Imagine the pay-per-view. Live, react- live reaction. <laughs> Imagine the pay-per-view revenue from that. Zuckerberg versus Elon at the Coliseum. <laughs> So I would just really hope it wouldn't be like an like a first round knockout. Another elder not millennialism. So remember Celebrity Deathmatch? Yes. It was the MTV claymation thing. Yes. And it was hilarious yes. and wonderful. And you can go back and watch it. I'm sure it's on YouTube. I, I, I know I saw like if we're going to start bringing up like billionaires and politicians like doing duels with each other, I'm all for it. Yeah. But I, I know I saw a bunch of hubbub on Twitter yesterday about uh, people trying to push for an AOC versus Marjorie Taylor Green fight. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just start pitting these people. Oh, in, I love in, it. Which, and Marjorie Taylor Green is fit. Like, like she, she, she could fight. <laughs> like, like AOC would have to train for it. She probably has the reach uh, though. Yeah. The acronyms. The acronym battle. MTG versus AOC. BJJ. PPV. I like reintroducing duels, but the duels are just mixed martial arts. You know, put on the gloves, you got to do the training. It's a very sovereign individual are you yeah, like we're, right. we're coming back into this <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm digging it i love it well any final thoughts before we wrap up today gents um i do have one little video that we could that we could show to close this thing out yeah uh, I, have I, I, to do I have a very fun tubular uh meat products yeah. <laughs> it, it's just mitt romney is telling us his favorite food that's i i, I just want i just this is, this is the senator from utah this is former this presidential is your great candidate. leader this is Fearless. Not a reptile, I promise. No, certainly not. <laughs> yeah, so uh, yeah, just a little uh, message from one of our great leaders right now. Well, as you all know, today is National Hot Dog Day. And uh, perhaps you also know that hot dog is my favorite meat. <laughs> I love hot dogs. Uh, I love them in buns. I love them outside of buns. I love them with baked beans. I just like hot dogs. It's the best you know, best meat there is, without question. Best meat there so is. So to all of you who, like me, are celebrating uh, National Hot Dog Day, uh, congratulations to you. And may there be many, many more hot dogs served in our wonderful land. In our wonderful land. 
Tell me you're an alien without telling me you're an alien. Oh, man. The hell well, was that? I mean, that? someone asked me to do that. I don't know what I would do. I don't know if I could do it better. You're like, here, okay, here. put on this you're tie. You're going to talk about hat. hot dogs for a minute and how great they are. I'd be like, I like hot dogs on <laughs> the bus. I like hot dogs in the train. Dude, you know? he did. Like, he went a Sam I Am direction with it. He's like, I like them in buns. I like them out of buns. I like them outside. So I like I them know. inside. It's just some staffer was like, it's a national hot dog day. We need some press attention. Here's a hot dog. And talk about how much you like it and walk towards your office. And he's like, okay. <laughs> He's like, fine, but I won't eat it because I know what happens <laughs> I just, when I eat it. I end I, up on the internet. I just, yeah, imagine. The I gifts. just feel bad yeah. for him, man. Like, I, obviously, we have many policy disagreements, uh, Senator Romney and I, but it, it, you just get, you, you ever get convinced to do something and immediately afterwards you're like, ah, I don't know. If that was, I, 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 I just I like wanted to, to be in that meeting with that staffer where you're just like, guys, I got an idea. <laughs> Well, you know how the boss likes hot dogs. You know, it's national. He, hot he dog won't day. stop talking about it around the office. <laughs> <laughs> Ever since he threw that hot dog party. Especially that's a pizza gate reference. <laughs> oh shit! Oh shit! Hot dog party is the new pizza gate. <laughs> well, no, no, that's that's from the Hillary emails. Oh, it is. That's a thing. It's oh, like, I walked it's backwards like a, into it's a, a, it's a known, QAnon thing. It's like a known like pedo code. Hot dog party? Uh, just hot dogs. Yeah. Oh well, then I, that's what I what thought you were referencing. Oh man! Oh no. No, I didn't know about the hot dog party thing. That's, yeah, that's, that's, that's from like the, the Hillary emails um, was uh, hot dogs. It's like like Obama needs to get 40,000 hot dogs or something. It was like a whole thing. <laughs> yeah. In, insatiable <laughs> appetite, that man. But anyways, <laughs> this has been a good podcast, guys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'll, we'll hey, leave you with that. <laughs> yeah, we'll leave you with that. And, uh, you know, we really appreciate you for watching. Again, like, subscribe, comment, and all that stuff. Uh, for David, the bald eagle of Liberty Rand, and Kyle, Captain Quigley Mac. I'm Joe Sheehan. Thank you for watching, and don't forget, may there always be many more hot dogs in our wonderful land. America! <laughs> Thanks so much for tuning in to the Liberty Portal podcast. To help us fight internet censorship, we'd really appreciate it if you like, comment, subscribe, follow, hit the notification bell, do whatever it is that you do wherever it is that you're listening to this podcast. To find us on social media and everywhere around the web, visit us at linktree.com slash libertyportalpod. And remember... It just irritates me because I started this, I started the small business and I'm literally like killing myself, tying myself in the knots, trying to figure out what I can and can't deduct. And this guy is just like, oh, you know, sex club. Obviously it's the same thing as a golf it's, club. It's a country club. <laughs> it's a country club. It's just like, man.